This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Matthias Kreisen, who is the author of A Very Nervous Person's Guide to Horror Movies. Matthias, thanks for being here with me today. Thanks so much. Could you start by talking a little bit about how this book came to be um, and and why you decided to write about horror and fear? (laughs) Right. Yeah, so the first question, um, I'm afraid the answer is going to be fairly boring uh, because it was actually my editor at Oxford University Press who approached me and said, I have an idea for a book. Do you want to do it? And I said, yes. And um, that's pretty much it. Uh, But uh, of course, he asked me for a reason. And the reason was partly that I had done another book for Oxford, which is uh, Why Horror Seduces. And also... um, it sounded to me like a fun thing to do, uh, to write a book on the science and the psychology of horror movies, but pitched at a broad audience. You know, as an academic, it's sometimes a little bit frustrating to know that you spend months writing an, a scholarly article and it will be read maybe by two people, uh, the editor of the journal and a copy editor. Um, so, so, And you have ideas, you have thoughts, you have findings that you want to put into the world. And so I thought this book would be a perfect vehicle. You know, when I was reading it, I have to say I have um, one friend who she and I love horror. We go to haunted houses, which is, you know, you talk about a little, we do all this stuff. And another friend who um, we finally gotten, she's finally become more interested in horror. And I was thinking that they would both love it, right? I was like, they would um, both sort of, it would help sort of understand the psychology, understand why we like to spend time together, mm-hmm. um, going, you know, seeing movies and going to haunted houses and all of that. So yes, that broader audience appeal, I think is one thing. And, and that you're, it's not only for people who are nervous about horror, but also people who are interested and ha- um, have a re- have a, some kind of relationship with it as well. That's right. Yeah. So, can you set up you uh, like how and you sort of look at um, especially American horror films, um, but like who is watching horror? Why is this a why? Why should we even care right. <laughs> about horror movies? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I think there are several ways in which we should care. Uh, One very kind of, uh, I guess, basic reason is that horror is so um, widespread. Um, um, So horror movies alone, they take up a huge chunk of, of the market share at the American box office. And it has only been growing in the 
last couple of years. I think it's now close to 20% of the box office in terms of uh, theater um, ticket sales. So it's a phenomenon that's, that's very prominent, salient, widespread, um, which in itself, I think, is reason to take it seriously. Uh, it's also paradoxical, um, especially to somebody who is not a big horror buff. Uh, it must look so weird to observe these people going to haunted attractions or movie theaters, uh, pay hard-earned money to be scared witless for, for an hour and a half. I mean, what's going on there? So, so those would be a few reasons, but also as a horror aficionado myself, uh, I have been frustrated for years by the uh, biases and prejudices that stick to the horror genre. You know, it has a reputation for being dumb or harmful or uninteresting. It's not the, th- not the kind of thing you want to admit that you're interested in at a staff meeting at the English department. Uh, so, so why is that? And are those biases against the horror genre fair? Uh, th- those were some of the things I tried to, to confront with the book. Yes. And I really appreciated that um, aspect of looking at that. And you sort of talk about even though horror gets this bad rap, it has, it, there's a long history, right, with horror and the importance of horror and how it plays out. And not only um, in popular culture, but in politics, it, you know, in, in the relationship to politics and, and society and social changes and um, social, even morality in some ways, uh, mm-hmm. and the importance of horror in those places. Yeah. yeah, I think actually, this is hard to investigate empirically, but I think probably the first kinds of stories that were told whenever our species uh, acquired the ability to to tell stories, they were probably horror stories. Um, so it's probably one of the oldest um verbal art forms that we have. So you sort of walk through um, different reasons why people might be nervous about seeing horror or questions they have. So you start with the jump scare. Um, So can you talk a little bit about what the, you know, for people who don't um, watch horror, what that really is and, and, and what you sort of found out in exploring the jump scare. Sure. Yeah. So what I did when I first started uh, preparing the book is I asked people on social media, um, are you nervous about horror? And if so, why? And certain, certain kinds of answers kept popping up. And many, many people mentioned the jump scare. Many people said, you know, I don't have anything against horror movies as such, but I really hate the jump scares. Um, and so I, I thought, I'm going to look into this because jump scares are pretty frequent. I mean, it's rare to have a horror movie without a jump scare. And it looks like they have become increasingly frequent uh, over time. So that back in the 60s, there were maybe on average two or three jump scares per horror movie, and now it's closer to 10. Um and, and and even though the jump scare has a reputation for being a cheap trick, something an unimaginative filmmaker will pull out of his or her hat when they are unable to establish, you know, a simmering atmosphere of dread or whatever, um, it's actually quite a sophisticated tool when it's done right. Um, so I looked at some of the cool jump scares that had frightened the socks off of, of me and tried to, to, tried to see how they were constructed. And it's really a, a 
very um, impressive choreography that underlies the effective jump scare. But added, you know, the, 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 the basic components of a jump scare uh, prototypically are um, some nasty image and a sudden loud noise. Those are the two basic components of the jump scare. So you're watching a movie and suddenly something nasty pops up onto the screen and there is a loud noise and people jump. And so what the jump scare does is that it um, sets off what is known as a startle response, which is a very primitive biological defense system that we share with most other animals. I mean, if you, you can do a jump scare on a cat or a rat, or you know, if you find a pigeon in your yard and you sneak up on it, you can do a jump scare. And all of these different species react pretty much the same way. So there is an almost instantaneous orientation toward um, the source of the startle, um, which is your organism preparing itself for attack. That's what the jump scare does. It cuts through you know, all reason and rationality and cognition, and it just um, throws a live wire into um, the command center of your nervous system. And that's when you jump, and it's so powerful. It's really hard to, to guard oneself against a, an effective jump scare. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. Throughout the book, you sort of talk about then how social film is, but really horror is. And like with the jump scare and, and reading, sometimes I'm like, yes, this all makes sense, right? About how, like, if you're with someone who has a certain reaction, your reaction might be heightened to yeah. that. Um, and I think about this, especially with the jump scare and, you know, or being in a seat, like being in a theater with everybody just when it's a really good jump scare and everyone is just like out of their seat, right? It's really heightened with that space. Yeah, yeah that's an amazing feeling to be part of that group of um, hairless apes <laughs> that all jump at the same time and scream at the same time at something happening on a on a screen. It's really quite amazing. And one other thing I want to point out um, that you've done within the book, which I think is really helpful is, I mean, there's really some really great images, but at times you also, and you did this with the jump scare, sort of give um, the readers films to either watch or not watch, yeah. um, you know, around certain issues. So you sort of um, in thinking about that larger audience, but also thinking about those people who are um, horror fans, um, like what are those films that if you really love that jump scare to go back to, let's mm -hmm. say, um, or if you, and if you really want it, that they're not there. Right. So we sort of um, let the audience and let the reader sort of know what you can where to go right yeah um and one other thing so we've got the jump scare and then there's all these these like sort of billboard topics that people come up with when they talk about horror so you talk also about um mental health and physical health right. uh, it was sort of you know and, and why and, and how those have been addressed in the horror genre and and what to do if you're nervous about those mm-hmm so can you talk a little bit about, um, we'll, we'll start with the mental health since that's, yeah. that chapter is X, but how, what you see with that. Right. And that's a big chapter that I think that's the biggest chapter in the book, because I think that's where really, uh, most people's nervousness about horror movies come to, to really meet. Um, and it's, it's a, that's a subject that's very close to my own heart. Uh, because doing research on the psychology of horror movies, I have come across countless studies that focus on 
uh, negative effects of horror movies, you know, showing that uh, 90 odd percent of American college students have some kind of more or less traumatic experience with a horror movie, that they have suffered nightmares from watching horror movies when they were 11 or refused to go camping because they saw Blair Witch Project or refused to go to the swimming pool because they saw Jaws, uh, refused to sleep in a room with a cupboard because they saw Poltergeist. Uh, and so usually the implicit or even explicit conclusion of such research is that horror movies are bad for you. Uh, and so for the longest time, um, media psychology especially as a field has ignored or neglected to even look for positive effects of horror. And that's something that I'm very keen on researching myself in my, um, in my research group. What does it do for people that is good? You know, we talked about briefly about the, the social aspect before. It looks like horror movies can actually bond people, but they might also have positive psychological effects. And so, so I tried to confront some of those myths that horror movies can, um, can cause PTSD or, you know, make people go crazy, uh, which does not seem to be the case. And it's really interesting too, because, um, well, you, you'd sort of talk about some films and, well, in one, it, well, it's not a, sort of a film. It was a television show, The Ghost Watch, mm-hmm. uh, which I really want to get a hold of after reading this. Um, but, you know, certain, like you talk about The Exorcist, um, and as I said, Ghost Watch, as well as, you know, some other films that really sort of show this... Um, ways in which mental health, like you talk about sort of even the opening of the exorcist and what, you know, people coming out to see the exorcist because of that Mm. um, idea that it could injure their mental health or hurt their mental health. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's a, it's a hard, it's a hard lived idea. So another thing is, so we've got um, sort of the mental health, but there's also physical health, right? So there's this Mm. issue that um, some people have, died died watching horror films or the director who took out um a what life insurance plans on his audience which i think is a great like narrative um because of this idea that you could like literally die watching the horror film yep so can you talk a little bit about how you sort of um saw that the idea that the horror movie can kill you and like like hurt you, but also how it could possibly be good for you physically. Right. Yeah. Um, so there is much less research on horror movies and, and physical health. Um, but it's a, it's a concern that I sometimes hear when I, for example, when I give lectures at libraries or, um, and I talk to people who are not really into horror and then somebody inevitably will ask with a kind of embarrassed grin, can you die from watching a horror movie? And, you know, it is theoretically possible to die from fright. And I did come across a few news items about people who died in the middle of horror movies. Uh, One middle-aged guy uh, keeled over in the middle of uh, Jaws. Uh, I found a couple of uh, cases from India. Uh, People, of course, famously fainted uh, during The Exorcist. Nobody did die. Um, But... I did not find a single case in which um, the individual who died did not have some kind of uh, health issue to begin with. 
So they probably would have died, and it was just coincidence that they died in the movie theater rather than in the bathroom or, you know, on the escalator in the mall. So that's one concern that seems to be unfounded. Um, you cannot, apparently, if you're in good or reasonable health, you can't die from watching a horror movie. But and how about how horror movies um, also might help your physical health, right? There's some <laughs> interesting, not very scientific studies, but there's, um, you know, some studies that have looked at that, the ways that it could be positive. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, there are some studies that look at um, uh, metabolism, for example. It seems to be the case that you burn calories when you watch a horror movie, uh, but they're they're gimmicks, um, not really scientifically controlled actual studies, but small-scale experiments conducted by um, video rental companies. And so, you know, the, you do burn slightly more calories if you watch a really scary movie than you would if you were just lying on the couch watching a reality TV show. But it's nothing that's going to make a difference in in your, you know, caloric budget. Um, so it's not going to be a replacement for physical exercise. Uh, but it also does not seem to be the case that there are any negative effects in terms of um, physical health from watching horror movies. But we don't know much because nobody has really done, you know, serious um, studies on this. So there's this, you know, mental health and physical health, but then the second half of the book really focuses on um, some of the ways that horror has impacted, like, society, um, social ideas about uh, immorality, and and you talk about them, like, that idea, you know, and I remember hearing a lot about this, you, you know, watching these, it's immoral, there's sex and drugs, and then the, you die. Um, and so... I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the idea of torture porn, because mm. that is a relatively, if we look, relatively new idea or term that comes up yeah. um, and, and and what that, start out by maybe what that means. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think the horror genre has attracted these kinds of moral panics um, pretty much throughout its history, that people have been concerned about the effects on morality from from scary stories, monster stories, uh, gory stories. And the most recent such moral panic that I came across was the whole uh, controversy surrounding so-called torture porn movies. And torture porn is not a very uh, positive term, obviously. Um, and I don't think most people who make those movies would embrace the term. But the term has been used to label um, a, a certain kind of a non-supernatural horror movie that has a very explicit and graphic focus on violations of the human body. Uh, so the most famous example is probably Hostel by Eli Roth, which is about a couple of backpackers who get captured by evil people running a shady organization that um, charges nasty people to torture and kill captured innocents. And so those movies will will focus visually uh, on this torture and killing of, of those innocents, which sounds like a very peculiar thing to want to see. Um, and it really, it, it roused a lot of people into condemning that sort of movie, claiming that people would become 
sadistic from watching them that young pe- pe- people would get the idea that uh, the torture is cool. Um, but I don't think I don't think most of those critics had actually watched any of the movies because they don't invite the audience to sympathize with the with the nasty torturers. They invite the audience to feel the pain of the people being tortured and to ask difficult questions about uh, when violence is called for. I mean, is violence ever a, a reasonable way to solve a conflict? If you've been captured by evil people who want to do bad things to you, uh, is pacifism really... So, you know, those kinds of questions. Um, so, th- so that will be torture porn, which drew a lot of press, m- most of it negative, even though it was not actually, not that many movies were made in the decade or so where people talked about torture porn. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And I think that's really interesting, too, that comes up throughout that um, there are, there's a large rise in horror films, it seems right now, but there are sort of it waxes and wanes, mm-hmm. right? And so I think you talked about finding a very small amount of films that were actually torture porn. But I guess if we looked at the correlation with how they are discussed in the media, that it looks like they're that's all that horror is doing. Right. right. Exactly. Um, and the other, th- another thing is that like um, those, the teens, right. The, the teens are going to go out, they're going to drink, they're going to do drugs, they're going to have sex mm. and then they're going to die. And I love there was, I, I don't know if it was around Halloween. You've got a, that's still a Friday the 13th there too. And Kevin Bacon, but mm. where um, some director said, I w- kind of want to show what teens are doing and, you, it's better to have sex before they die than yeah. like after they die, right? Like it's yes. like, well, yeah, duh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that that idea that like you know that that people who are getting killed in horror films are the ones who are doing the bad, quote unquote, right, bad or immoral things? Yeah, yeah. I think um, that's I, that's I think that's where it becomes a little bit tricky because. Um, so this is this is mainly an issue with uh, slasher movies, and uh, slasher movies really had their heyday in the 1980s. It was kicked off by Halloween by Carpenter, which remains my own personal favorite slasher film. Not the first one. I mean, you can point to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or even Psycho, as kind of uh, four four parents of the slasher film. But in the, in the 1980s, more than 700 slasher films were produced and released in the, in the U.S. And um, slasher movies tend to be about young people uh, who are chased and killed by some masked stranger. Uh, Michael Myers in Halloween, um, uh, Jason Voorhees or his mom in Friday the 13th, uh, <laughs> um, Freddy Krueger in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and so on. And um, some some critics, I think mainly... not not journalistic critics, but uh, academic critics, um, criticized slasher movies for being conservative in that they tended to depict young people who 
had sex and did drugs and drank and so on, and then got killed by the slasher villain who was then seen as a kind of representative of a certain conservative worldview, according to which you should not do those things. Um, but people like John Carpenter always resisted those interpretations. And he said, you know, I was just trying to depict the teenager in its natural habitat. And what teenage, teenagers do is drink and have sex and do drugs, or at least they do some of that and dream about the rest of it. Um, and of course, you know, Laurie Strode, the final girl in Halloween, she is a goody two-shoes. Um, but she's also the only one who is not too busy having sex and, do, and drinking uh, to actually spot Michael Myers lurking behind the hedge or standing outside the window. So it's not necessarily that she's morally pure in a conservative sense. It's that she pays attention to her surroundings. That's how she survives. And Lori's coming back. <laughs> she is fall. indeed. Again and again, yes. <laughs> I know. She keeps returning. I love it. It makes yeah. me very happy. <laughs> Same here. Um, the, and, you know, it's. I love when I, you know, read and it just makes me, it reminds me of where when I came to, your book reminded me of, my sort of pattern of coming to horror, right? That, and my first sort of real love and introduction was Freddy Krueger. And I, I still remember like the beginning of that, seeing that, like probably being able to recite that movie over right when I was in, and I was in June, right? I think I was like seventh grade mm. when that came out. Um, and, and you sort of talk about that, like showing kids horror films and what that means is one of those chapters in that um, sort of, that, that sort of, sixth seventh eighth grade that or in the united states i guess so it would be what oh 10 11 12 13 like that is mm -hmm. the age where we really start to think about horror so i'd love for you to talk a little bit about the research you um found about young people and horror mm -hmm. films and, and watching horror yeah yeah that's that's that seems to be another concern that we should shield kids from scary media um, and I think much of that concern is, well, either it's based on intuition that you have a sense that kids shouldn't watch scary movies about monsters and and uh, masked killers, or it comes out of that research I mentioned before showing the prevalence of uh, nightmares and mild behavioral disturbances when kids sneak into the living room Saturday night in their pajamas and they see something that, that terrifies them. So they have to sleep with the lights on for for weeks. Um, but there seems to be a very n natural attraction to scary stories for kids that emerges very early. And actually, I became so fascinated with this whole issue of kids and scary stories during the writing of the book that I've been uh, researching it uh, ever since. And so we have some new studies underway. Uh, one study that was um, two of my research interns did a did an awesome job in collecting data on on the prevalence of recreational fear in Danish daycare institutions, which sounds like an insane project. I mean, how would you find horror in uh, in in, uh, in nurseries and kindergarten? As it turns out, you know, Danish daycare institutions are full of scary stuff. The, the teachers very deliberately exposed the kids to mildly frightening activities, including um, scary stories that are being read aloud, um, different uh, singing games that very often are about scary trolls or ogres or monsters, 
um, imaginative uh, pretend games that involve scary elements. And I think they do this, the teachers, because they have, they have an intuition that exposing kids to small controllable doses of, um, of fear is not only enjoyable, the kids love it, you know, hide and seek or chase play, um, but it's also good for them because it teaches them how to cope. Uh, it, it teaches them important things about what fear feels like. Um, how does it feel in my tummy when I'm nervous about this game we are playing? How much can I, can I stomach? Um, and how can I regulate my own emotions? If we're playing hide and go seek and I'm hiding in a closet and the teacher or a parent is pretending to be a monster and my heart is racing and my palms are sweating and so on, what can I do to regulate that fear, to stay calm and collected in the closet? And, and those are, that's, that's an important skill that I think what we call recreational fear, um, which is a broader phenomenon that includes horror. Uh, it's a skill that can be used in, in the real world because nobody goes through life without stumbling into situations that are anxiety or even fear-provoking. And so it's good to know how to handle fear, whether it's for an exam or a job interview or whatever. Well, and that is a, like another thing that you address is how um, right now with COVID-19, people who are interested, who watch horror and interested in horror seem to be coping with some things like this a little better. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about like that idea and that phenomenon that you found as well? Yeah, that was a fun study that was actually inspired by a conversation on Twitter. Um, so years ago, I had uh, I did an interview with a, a British science magazine, a New Scientist, on um, horror stories, and I think I mentioned at some point that I thought that that scary stories can be good for us. And so, in the early days of the pandemic. The journalist who had written that story uh, wrote on Twitter, I think kind of tongue-in-cheek, she asked, so, you know, you said back way back when we did the interview that horror movies can be good for you. Do you think horror fans are doing a better job of coping with the pandemic? And so I thought, well, let's find out. And so I teamed up with a couple of colleagues, and we did this study, an empirical study, where we recruited um uh, a couple hundred people and asked them about their genre preferences. Do you like horror movies? Do you like alien invasion movies? Do you like zombie movies? And we also gave them a questionnaire that was designed to um, give us a measure of their resilience or you know the psychological distress that they felt in response to the lockdown. Do you suffer from um, an inability to concentrate? You know, this is, and this is early days of the lockdown, I think in April 2020. And many people had trouble sleeping or trouble staying focused, and they would doom scroll on social media and so on. And it actually turned out that the horror movie fans, people who watch a lot of horror movies, exhibited fewer signs of psychological distress, that they were doing a better job of keeping fear and anxiety down. And we can't show any kind of causal relationship in a study like that, but we can show a correlation. Um, and, and I think it's reasonable to speculate that those people who had watched a lot of horror movies had in the process, and this is not why they do it, they do it because it's fun, but kind of under the radar, when they watch those horror movies, um, they, they get practice, practice in the fine art of emotion regulation. Because anybody who has seen a horror movie will 
recognize that moment when it becomes really scary. You know, you can tell from the music and the pattern of editing that something nasty is going to happen. And so you start stealing yourself. You employ these different uh, coping or emotion regulation strategies. And like any other ability, um, they get better with practice. Right. And so we've got the, another situation you sort of talk about around the sort of cult, the, you know, um, the cultural phenomenon or the, the cultural aspects of horror is also, um, and it wasn't a strict um, correlation, but like when horror films are made in the United States, right, during the Republican administration or during the Democratic administration, you were able to kind of look at how that played out since the early 1960s. So can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, that was, mm, that actually started more as a kind of uh, attempt to satisfy my own curiosity. Um, Because I was interested here in the relationship between horror movies and culture in a broader sense, uh, like you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, horror movies reflect i mean that's 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 one argument for the value of horror movies is that they're not necessarily mindless entertainment but they're very often reflections dark reflections of the things that haunt us uh things that are bubbling just under the surface on a on a kind of culture-wide scale uh so in a sense you can use horror movies as a kind of a uh, symptom of whatever is um, plaguing a culture. And that's an old idea. Uh, Stephen King writes about it very eloquently in Dance Macabre, which is the nonfiction book he, he published uh, 40 years ago. Uh, but I had heard this idea at conferences and when talking to horror researchers that that um, conservative conservative eras are particularly fertile soil for the horror movie. Um, and so I tried to collect some statistics, and it, it doesn't really seem to be the case. Um, it seems to be the case that horror movies do well pretty much independently of what kind of political climate you're in. Um, it does look like uh, times of crisis are good for the horror movie, uh, given what I said before about 2020 and 2021 being very uh, good years for the horror movie. And then, of course, as a counter-argument, one could say that in the 1940s, there were very few horror movies, but that could be other financial factors playing in. Uh, as a counter-counter-argument, uh, the famous universal monster uh, horror movies in the early 1930s come on the heels of the Great Depression. So you know, I think there is something to be said for the idea that we can use horror movies to navigate uh, times of, of crisis, whether personal psychological crisis or a more um, broad scale, broad scale, uh, culture wide crisis. You, um, so you go through all these things about you know horror and and um, discussing sort of different aspects, and then you end with something right like so you're ready, right? Like what do you want to do to watch horror? And you give some suggestions, but there's two I want to talk about in particular that you mentioned first because I think it's really important. It's like one of the things you say if you're a little nervous about it is don't go to the movie theater. Mm. Um, right. And and you talk about this a little bit throughout, but can you talk about that? Like, what is it about the movie theater that adds to this uh, sort of this fear and this nervousness that you might have about horror? Right. Well, one thing has to do with um, very basic signal strength. So um, the screen is much larger in the movie theater, uh, which means the 
the uh, the scary images are going to fill up your entire visual field. That's different from watching even you know a fairly big flat screen in your living room. It maybe takes up a fifth of your visual field, but in the movie theater, it pretty much dominates the visual field. So the scary things are going to be bigger, proportionally speaking. And also the sounds are going to be louder because movie theaters uh, tend to have really good sound systems. And sound, of course, is crucial to the effect of the horror movie. I mean, that's maybe the one advantage the horror movie has over horror literature is uh, sound. Um, so the signal is stronger, the visual signal and the auditory signal. But it's also a matter of immersion. And we know that there is a correlation between uh, immersion and emotional response. So the more immersed you feel in the, in the, in the, in the, in the story, the stronger you are likely to respond to it. And the movie theater is designed, the modern movie theater is designed for maximum immersion. It's designed to be as little distracting as possible. So you sit in these really cushy, comfy chairs, and the whole room is painted black, um, and the lights go down once the movie starts, and so there is as little as possible um, opportunity for distraction, which means that your entire attention is focused on the screen and on the sounds. So it really, it's, it's all about um, immersing you into that big tub of horror. And I think that's, that's, that's why if you love horror, you should go to the movie theater uh, because it's not just what I just said, but like you also said before, it's a, it's a more kind of powerfully social experience. But if you're nervous about horror, uh, you want to begin at home where you can control the surroundings and when the, where there are plenty of, of uh, opportunities for self-distraction, which is a very effective coping strategy. Yeah, yes, it's I, I found sometimes it's hard when I'm trying to cultivate children to be horror fans. And I, you know, they both kind of are. But um, when I sit down with my son, especially since he's a little older to watch these, I'm like, you're gonna watch my classic horror films. Um, like, they're just different when you're sitting and looking at a screen, you know, I'm like, no, I want you to actually see this in a movie theater. And they, so it makes me happy when people are coming back, right. When, when, you know, Halloween comes back because we can go to the movie theater and really like have that experience um, and see that. The other thing I thought was super interesting you talk about is playing Tetris. (laughs) So um, why is Tetris like a good thing to do if you are um, a little nervous but ready to jump into horror? Right. So the reason I recommend that, and it's not my own idea, it's, it's, it's an idea I stole from a neuroscientist. Um, but he based that idea off of studies that, that show that if you have some kind of traumatic experience, if you then play Tetris as soon as possible after that experience, you're not going to form as strong memories. And so it kind of counteracts um, PTSD symptoms. Um, And so I've been doing it myself for years without knowing what it was I was doing, not with Tetris, but with funny YouTube videos. So I still get scared from horror movies. And sometimes sometimes if something something scares me really badly, I'll set aside 10 or 15 minutes after the movie to to watch something lighthearted. And it actually turns out that there is research to support this intuition that um, you prevent the formation of those long-term memories that can be a little bit overwhelming. And Tetris seems to be especially well-suited for it. I think because that game really commands all your cognitive resources. I mean, you can't, 
you can't cook and play Tetris at the same time. You have to be fully dedicated to the game. And so it's a kind of way of kind of scrubbing the mental palate uh, if you feel you have been overwhelmed by a horror movie. So, um, you know, you get to the end of the book and one of the, I, I have a question for you about, so we've read it. Um, for those readers and those people who are in that sort of, I'm nervous about horror, but I'm ready to start. Like, do you have some... Um, film recommendations for go to like these are some you know I mean it's not like you have to go to these but what are those ones that you think would be really really great to just sort of start out the horror genre with Mm, that's a really good question Um, I probably I don't have a ready answer so I'm going to try to think (laughs) my way to an answer while I'm talking Um, because you don't want to turn people off you don't want to confirm their worst suspicions that it's stupid or gory or aesthetically uninteresting. So I'd probably try to come up with a recommendation for a horror movie that is intelligent and that prompts reflection and that is beautifully made. Um, and I think actually, actually what I would do, and this is probably going to be a little bit controversial because this is a movie that you either hate or love, but I would probably uh, recommend Cabin in the Woods and I'm one of those horror fans who really loved Cabin in the Woods, and I've seen it many, many times. But I think it's a very intelligent um, conversation with horror movie conventions that are so well-known that even people who have never watched a slasher movie will recognize the conventions and will be able to appreciate the way in which that movie kind of pokes fun at, but also adopts those conventions. And also it has a lot of humor. And I think that's 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 going to be a plus for somebody who is not uh, beforehand sold on the idea of, of horror movies. So that might be... And then probably if they thought that was fun, I would say go watch Halloween because it's such a beautiful, uh, well-made, um, effective uh, horror movie. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, yeah. <laughs> I love, I do love Halloween too. I love, but I love all the slashers. So on the other hand, when I was re every time I read something like this, I'm like, oh, now I need to go back and watch all these. I just re I just talked to someone about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and had to rewatch. You know, I'm like, okay, I need to rewatch it and sit and see. So for those of us who love horror, like, are there um, those movies that you're like, after you read this, this might be really fun to return to, to start to think about like some of the things that you've addressed in the book. Yeah. One, one thing I've done myself recently is I've, I've been avoiding those Japanese horror movies for a long time because they used to scare me so badly that I, I, I just couldn't. But now I kind of built, built up my courage and, and finally got around to watching dark water and, uh, uh, Juwan and some of those Japanese horror movies from the 90s and, and, and zeros. And they're really, really good. I mean, they bring something new to the table. Um, they're able to, I think if, if you feel that you're a jaded kind of Hollywood horror uh, fan, then check out those Asian horror movies because they follow a slightly different beat. Uh, the monsters don't play by the exact same rules and so on. So so if you want to be shaken back into a kind of visceral appreciation of horror, uh, going to, to, to the horror movies of other countries, it could even be Scandinavian horror movies. We don't do many, but there are some. Um, that would be, I think, a, a recommendation. 
So my last question will hopefully be not hard, right? But um, can you do if this book is coming out really soon? So it's mm. coming as before we're talking, it's coming out the beginning of October, right? Mm. Right, right in time for our Halloween season. Um, but are there other things you are, and there might not be, but are there other things you're working on? You sort of talked about children and sort of scaries and, and you know, fear and stories. Um, that, but is there anything else you're working on that you sort of want to promote or talk about? Right. Yeah. So we, we, we have a, I was fortunate enough to be able to establish my own um, research lab. It's called the Recreational Fear Lab. And it's discoverable online. And we have several projects underway. Uh, we did a study that I don't think it made it into the book, but we were interested in this earlier finding that there are different kinds of horror fans, uh, some that we call adrenaline junkies, who get a lot of pleasure out of intense stimulation. You know, those are the ones that want the scariest movies to get a kick and feel alive. And then there are horror fans that we call white knucklers who also enjoy horror, but see it as more as a, of, of a, um, a, ch a challenge in self-control. They want to make it through alive. And then we actually found a third kind that we call the dark coper. And there are people who enjoy horror movies, but also use them therapeutically um, to confront a world that they think is scary. So I think that's, that's a promising line of research to kind of disentangle the different kinds of horror fans and their different um, motives for seeking out scary entertainment. Uh, something else that we're looking at is um, the role of interoception, which is when you register the signals coming from your body. And it looks like people who have anxiety disorders might actually not be very good at interoception. They're not very good at, at, at getting an accurate um, reading of their heart rate, for example. Um, and so we're, we're designing a study right now where we're going to look at uh, interoceptive ability and fear levels among haunted house visitors. Um, so several, several new lines of inquiry that hopefully will shed even more light on the uh, otherwise dark psychological machine room of, of uh, horror. Thanks for talking with me. It's Matthias Grayson, who is the author of A Very Nervous Person's Guide to Horror Movies. Um, I really appreciate your time here on the New Books Network.